grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Let the Church of Jesus Christ say, Amen. In 2006, Katie and I loaded up a moving truck and headed out west to Pasadena, California, so I could attend seminary. Now, for the purposes of this story, you need to know that Katie and I were both born in Michigan. We were both raised in Michigan. And that meant that for both of us, all of our instincts about outdoor activities had been shaped by the weather in Michigan, which, as you know, is not always predictable. One of the things you need to know about the weather in Los Angeles is that it is very predictable. Let me illustrate. We moved out on June 18, 2006. In Los Angeles, the weather was 85 degrees, sunny, 0% precipitation, 10% humidity. Beautiful. In Flint, the weather was 79 degrees, rainy, 100% precipitation, 100% humidity. Typical, muggy, rainy day in Michigan. Moving along, Katie's birthday, September 3rd, 2006. In Los Angeles, the weather was 99 degrees, sunny, 0% precipitation, 15% humidity. Again, beautiful. In Flint, 64 degrees, 75% precipitation, 80% humidity. A pre-fall, late summer, partly rainy day, okay? Mid-October, October 12th. 2006 in Los Angeles, the weather at 6 p.m. was 72 degrees, sunny, 0% precipitation, 20% humidity. In Flint, the weather at 6 p.m. was 31 degrees, snowy with two inches of snow on the ground. Thanksgiving, November 24th, 2006, in Los Angeles, the weather at 9 a.m. was 67 degrees, a little brisk morning for us L.A. folks. Sunny, 0% precipitation, 20% humidity. We're in Flint, the weather at 9 a.m. was 27 degrees. On Christmas Day, 2006, the weather in Los Angeles was 77 degrees, sunny, 0% precipitation, 15% humidity, while in Flint, the weather was 35 degrees and windy. Someone told us that the weather in Los Angeles is metaphorically like having freshly baked delicious chocolate cake every single day. You never needed to worry about rain canceling an event. You knew Christmas was coming not because the weather changed, but because the stores began hanging up snowflake decals in the windows and serving up hot spiced latte drinks while it was 75 and sunny. Outdoor weddings could be planned months in advance with no fear. Beach trips could be reasonably made 10 out of 12 months a year with hardly a look at the weather conditions. The lack of precipitation in our area meant no mosquitoes. The low humidity meant no ragweed, which for me meant no allergies. So look, for two Michiganders, accustomed to seasonal changes and wild weather swings, living in California's climate really did feel like eating chocolate cake every single day. I mean, we did have earthquakes and wildfires and mudslides and... 
And we were just two people living among 16 million people in a city that never really ended, but still, the weather, you guys. But after six years of eating chocolate cake every single day, we began to feel an itch in our soul. Something was off. Something wasn't quite right. And maybe it was going to the beach in December like it was no big deal. Maybe it was the absence of a fall, like no mornings where you could see your breath. Maybe it was the awareness that there really wasn't a planting and harvesting season. They're just, you planted whenever you wanted and picked whenever it was ripe. Living in L.A. was like only listening to Vivaldi's spring movement on repeat forever, never having to endure the, the weather, uh, the stormy blast of summer or the meandering mournful ache of winter. And the truth was, after six years, we found that we really missed the four seasons. Our internal rhythms felt off. We felt seasonally unmoored. We wanted the discipline of times to plant and times to pluck up. We wanted the rhythms of rain and sun and, yes, even frost and snow. We wanted the trees to turn colors and leaves to blanket the ground. We wanted it to be absurd again to even think about going to a beach in December. We wanted a more complicated weather report for our weeks and months and years. Why? I don't really know all of the reasons, but upon moving back to Michigan, we discovered that that annual journey from spring to summer to fall to winter to spring we all take here, it settled our souls. It disciplined our spirits. It introduced an element of unpredictability into our planning and our living. Today's psalm, Psalm 103, is a particularly special psalm for me because it opens with two verses that our family says aloud to begin our prayers before every meal. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless God's holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all God's benefits. And then we go on and name some of those benefits, some of those blessings we've experienced at the hands of God. And look, sometimes, church, sometimes we're in a hurry and we say it quickly, and other times we take it slowly and savor the blessings of God. But these words ground our mealtime praying. Paul and I have used Psalm 103 at funeral services, standing at the graveside, uttering those words, the Lord knows how we are made. He remembers that we are dust whose days are like grass, but the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting. We've used Psalm 103 as words of assurance in our Sunday liturgy. As far as the east is from the west, so far he removes our transgressions from us. Beautiful words, faithful words, important words. But I'm aware, however, that Psalm 103 can also be an especially hard psalm for some people to hear, let alone offer up as heartfelt prayer. To praise the God who, as verse 3 says, heals all your diseases as your body is losing its fight with cancer, that's hard to pray. To praise the God who, in verse 5, satisfies you with good as long as you live while you're struggling to make ends meet and you've borrowed money from your parents too many times, that's hard to pray. To praise the God who, verse 6, works justice for all who are oppressed when it feels like the systems of this world are perfectly tuned to make your way harder through this world, 
so that a routine traffic stop becomes for some a life or death experience simply because of the color of their skin. Well, let's just say it's hard to see how God is working vindication and justice sometimes. Jewish liturgies use parts of Psalm 103 across many different services to sometimes express praise, but also lament, sorrow, confession of sin, thanksgiving, joy. Psalm 103 is a complicated psalm, it turns out. Incidentally, Psalm 103 has 22 lines in the original Hebrew, and that number might not mean much to us English speakers, but 22 is the number of letters in the complete Hebrew alphabet. Coupled to that, we note that Psalm 103 begins and ends with the exact same Hebrew phrase, Barakhi nafshi eth Adonai, bless the Lord, my soul. Because of this bookend at the beginning and the end, because of the 22-line structure, many scholars rightly point out that this psalm is designed to be a symbol, a psalm encompassing all of life. It is a totality psalm. It's a psalm for everybody. It's a psalm for every season. It's a psalm with a line for every letter of the alphabet of our life's experiences. But let's, let's dive into Psalm 103. If you have your Bibles with you, or you have your pew Bible there, turn to Psalm 103, and we'll, uh, we'll talk about this psalm. And I want to use the four seasons as an analogy here, because I think that Psalm 103 offers to us reminders about God's activity in what we might call four seasons of life, four seasons of human experience. Unlike the weather conditions in L.A., Psalm 103 does not assume that we are all experiencing the same season always and forever. Rather, Psalm 103 is a witness to the reality that we humans journey through a variety of seasons in our lives. But Psalm 103 reminds us that in every one of those seasons, God is with us and active for us. So here's what I'm calling the four seasons of Psalm 103. In each of these seasons, we're going to see that the psalm addresses us humans and gives to us statements of faith about God that we can cling to. Short statements and reminders about what God has done, is doing, or will do in the midst of these times. And in the end, we find that Psalm 103 is ultimately a collection of 17 statements of God's activity. 17 sentence-length confessions of faith that are designed to kindle within our hearts thanksgiving for what God has already done, but also hope for what God will yet do. The first season, we might say, is the season of health or sickness. In the first season, we find reminders to the healthy, those who had been sick, but who had experienced recovery and renewal of health. I'm especially looking at verses 3 through 5. Bless the Lord who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good as long as you live so that your youth is renewed. Psalm 103 says, look, go ahead, be amazed at how our bodies can combat sickness and disease. Be impressed at how antibodies can be marshaled to repel viruses, how a broken bone can knit itself back together, 
how our brains can even create new neural pathways after a stroke, and so forth. But let that amazement be redirected into praise and thanks to God, who is ultimately responsible for any of our healing or recovery we've experienced. Psalm 103 assumes that praise and thanks should be an automatic, knee-jerk, instinctual response to those who have gone through sickness and disease and who are on the other side of it. Looking back on that, it is, bless the Lord, O my soul, who has healed all your diseases. But buried in this first season are also words of comfort and assurance to those who are in the middle of sickness and disease. The statements here about the God who heals and redeems our life, the God who renews our youth, those may not reflect our current experience. And so these statements do not become descriptions, but rather statements of hope, statements of longing, statements of trust for those who are sick, for those whose life feels precariously balanced on the edge of the pit for those who feel like they have been crowned with suffering and shame and not love and mercy. Psalm 103 becomes words of invocation, words that we use to call upon God for assistance in times of suffering. We're invited to call upon the God whose character is revealed as the God who heals and redeems and satisfies, the God who will yet act on our behalf whether or not we will experience that action in this life or in the world to come. The first season is a season of health and sickness. The second season, we might say, is a season of liberation or oppression. In the second season, verses 6 and 7, we find reminders, statements of faith to the vindicated, to those who have been liberated, to those who have been freed, for those who, have, who were oppressed but who found justice. The Lord works vindication and justice for all who are oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel. When the wrongfully imprisoned are exonerated, when the addicted find sobriety to be better than a fix, when those experiencing homelessness find support and help when the impoverished and destitute find a faithful public defender the proper posture of the human person in those moments is to turn to god in thanks and praise why because god is a god who works vindication and justice when god rescued the enslaved people of israel in egypt he disclosed to the whole world his liberating nature god's desire to set captives free and to loose every chain. And so for those who have not yet found a measure of justice, for those for whom the moral arc of the universe has not yet bent toward what is right, for those who remain wrongfully accused, mired in addiction, lost in the cruel and oppressive systems of this world, Psalm 103 is a word of comfort, for the God we praise and worship is a God who looses chains and sets prisoners free, a God who undoes the yoke of oppression and who lifts that burden from the shoulders of the weak. 
And so even in distress, Psalm 103 directs our prayers to a God whose nature is to liberate and to set free. The second season is one of oppression and vindication. The third season of Psalm 103, verses 8 to 13, the longest section, is aimed at those who are presently caught in the labyrinth of guilt and shame for their past actions and who wonder if it is possible for them to ever be forgiven. Church, I remember sitting down with a parishioner in my previous call who had been diagnosed with terminal cancer and who wasn't sure how long they would be able to live. He, he made an appointment with me to sit down to ask me, tears in his eyes, is there a specific sin that was unforgivable in God's eyes? Something that he could not be pardoned for. He never told me what it was, but he was desperate, anxious, fervent. He was terrified that something he had done in the past would be quantifiably stronger than any mercy of God. After a long conversation, we ended up right here in Psalm 103, verses 8 to 13, reading together in the basement of the First Presbyterian Church of Ithaca, Michigan, and hearing this afflicted man read out loud the words, God does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities, is a memory that will not ever fade from my pastoral imagination. If you are here today, and if you are dealing with guilt or shame from your past, if you are wondering, is there a line you could cross where God would stop loving you? If you feel trapped in a wasteland of shame and self-loathing, Psalm 103 offers you a powerful reminder that the God we praise here is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. Psalm 103 reminds you that the God we worship here says that as, a, as the heavens are high above the earth, so great is God's love. And as far as the east is from the west, so far does God remove all our transgressions. Psalm 103 arrives in our season of despair, our season of shame at our own sinfulness and offers to us reminders that God's love is so much greater than our transgression and that God's mercy is so much stronger than all our guilt. If you're here today and you need to hear that word, Psalm 103 has it for you. The final season of Psalm 103 comes in verses 14 to 18, and here we find reminders to those who are experiencing end-of-life issues. Those for whom their baptismal journey on this side of glory is nearing its end. These verses are verses for those whose treatments have proven unsuccessful, whose kidneys have failed for the last time, those for whom hospice care has started and who are not sure if they will experience another Christmas, birthday, or anniversary. Even here in this season of endings, we find statements about God. God remembers how we are made. God remembers that we are but dust. And even though our lifetimes flourish for a moment but are quickly over, God's steadfast love is from everlasting to everlasting and God has established a kingdom that rules over all others, even over the kingdom of death and dying and the grave. Psalm 103, verses 
uh, 14 to 18, these are words to utter at a graveside. They are words to cling to for the dying. They are words that speak of how the poet Frederick Lehman once put it, the love of God is greater far than tongue or pen can ever tell. It goes beyond the highest star and reaches to the lowest hell. And my favorite part of that poem is the ending. Could we with ink the ocean fill and were the skies of parchment made, were every stalk on earth a quill and everyone a scribe by trade, to write the love of God would drain the ocean dry. Nor could the scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky. Psalm 103 could not agree more. Church, I love Psalm 103 because it shapes me to remember that no one's life is the human equivalent of the weather in Los Angeles, California. 75 and sunny every day, and every day a beach day. No one, no matter how much money they have, or how healthy their family systems appear, or how educated they are, or how neat and well-mannered their kids are, no one's life is a homogenous climate of happiness. We get sick. We watch loved ones suffer. We can become victims of unjust systems. We enter into hospice care fearful of dying. We're guilt-ridden at our own sin. We become mired in addiction and can so often feel as if we are under the wrath of God. And Psalm 103 says yes to all of that. Yes, that stuff happens. But in the midst of every season, in the middle of every possible moment, of every possible letter of the alphabet of our experiences, there is yet good news. Because right in the middle, of all of our stuff and all of our junk and all of our hurt and all of our pain is the very presence of the liberating, redeeming, healing, and life-giving God. A God whose love is far greater than all our pain and whose grace is far stronger than all our sin. No matter what season you find yourself in today, you are never far from the love and mercy and compassion of God. And in the final reckoning of time, it is God's love that will win, God's mercy that will triumph, and God's compassion that will narrate the final story of this universe. Church, I speak to you in the name of this God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.